The Understable Podcast is brought to you by Anchor.fm and Hazy Shade Disc Golf and more. Swing into Hazy Shade today to check out their selection of discs, hats, apparel, and other accessories. If you need it, Hazy has you covered. And if you can't get into their store, go to hazyshade.com to find some great deals on stuff you might need. All right, everybody, it is 2022, and this is our first episode of the year, episode number 26. Understable Podcast is back after our short little break for the holidays. Uh, We are excited for what this year brings to us. Got some cool interviews lined up, some great uh, guests lined up, including tonight. But I think you guys are going to really like the content we have coming forward. But with that, I'm going to turn things over to Patrick and let him kick this off. Yeah, happy 2022, everybody. I hope you guys had a wonderful new year bringing it in. We're really excited about our upcoming guests that we have, but tonight I'm really excited to catch up with a friend that I met back in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina when I used to know when I used to live there. Um, my buddy Philip Bartholomew. I'm terrible with names, so I hope I got that right. But he is PDGA number four five four four one. Um, like I said, based out of Raleigh, current rating is one thousand three. Um, some highlights about Philip is that he was handpicked by the Scott Stokely to carry on the Scott, the Scott Stokely method, a uh, instructional way to teach disc golf. We're going to talk about that. Um, some other highlights about this young guy is he recently won the peach tree open. I think it wasn't at least a B tier. Um, and he beat off the likes of Nathan queen and shot a thousand 58 rated round, 1,085. I think Phil will correct me, but um, I think he's going to be a really great interview. I want to really talk to him about teaching disc golf because I know that's something he's very passionate about. want to find out what his tour looks like this year. I know he's picked up some new sponsorships from some names that we know about, and this guy is on his fourth year or fifth year of being with Team Discraft. So even just getting on that team, you know you've got to have something in the in the tank there. So yeah, it's, I mean, that's a pretty impressive resume already. Um, but it, it all started somewhere, right? None of us jumped straight into a contract with Team Discraft or Team Innova or any of the teams. So, uh, Philip, first of all, thank you for joining us. Um, but go ahead and like give us a quick snapshot of your of your story. What what brought you to disc golf, and what was it that brought you to where you are now? Yeah, definitely. Um, and first thing I want to do, I just want to immediately correct Patrick because that's what I like to do to Patrick. <laughs> um, and so it was, I think it was a 1048 average um, for the tournament at Peachtree and fourth year with Discraft. Um, and so, you know, with uh, with Disc Golf or just in general with, with Discraft when it started, which would you rather hear? Let's hear about, you know, you finding about Disc Golf with your with your pappy or whoever you know how who, where, where did you first see a disc and wanted to throw yeah totally so yeah grew up in raleigh north carolina playing sports uh mostly hockey and soccer that was kind of what i came up on um and uh going into probably like middle school sixth grade seventh grade we i, I lived near a disc golf course my whole life probably about five minutes away um, didn't even know what it was. We went to the park uh, that was kind of located in the middle of the disc golf course. And, you know, I had no idea there was even this sport that was revolving around me my whole life um, until, you know, middle school. And and we 
I think, I don't even know who took me down there. It was one of our neighborhood buddies. We just kind of rode our like razor scooters down this course and we'd like stash them in the woods. We all had like a disc. I think my first disc was like a DX beast. But um, yeah, we, we would just go down there and casually play. Um, and I didn't really see anything in the sport. I didn't, I didn't even know who anybody was i wasn't even you know relevant uh or like keeping up with you know world champions at the time or anything like that um until uh probably like well it was i was playing pretty heavily going from sixth to seventh grade but not competition wise um in eighth grade though i was playing soccer i was a goalie and i like got this weird injury where someone went to kick the ball that was already in my hands and I dislocated my pinky. Uh, basically, if you can imagine the second knuckle on your pinky, the pinky popped up and was sitting like on the top of my hand. Um, and that's a pretty gnarly thing to see <laughs> when you're in eighth grade. So uh, after that happened, I just kind of lost my competitive edge as a goalie. I used to be the sacrifice your body type goalie um totally risk the biscuit on every single save and after that happened i just didn't have that aggressive tendency in me anymore um and i could see myself falling in love with disc golf so uh, i think i had to take off like six or seven weeks from soccer um so i all i did was play disc golf every single day rather than going to soccer practice and then playing disc golf and um i think i just really fell in love with it at that point and uh yeah i mean i went professional in 10th grade um after i won an a tier in the advanced division so it was uh it was a pretty quick trip to the professional level um and then i've kind of been hanging out there ever since nice so i know as of maybe two years that you actually kind of got on tour, jumped and hit the road. Let's go back a little bit before that, though. You know, you're 18, you know, kids are going off to college. Did, did you go off to school or do any kind of schooling or did you just kind of work a job, focus on disc golf? What were you doing? Yeah, so that's definitely something that um, I haven't talked a lot about uh, pretty much with anybody. Um, but I, I guess I'm willing to open up about it because it's kind of important for people to know this um, and to be able to live through my experiences. But um, I dropped I dropped out of high school um, at the age of 17. Um, complications with just life situations, and so you know, my dad was basically like, "Hey, man, time to get a job and be an adult." I moved out of my house at 18 and I just started working full time. Um, and it's something that, you know, could have been a regret in my life if my life didn't turn out the way that it did. But um, it just showed me how to work really hard and, you know, be a, be a valued worker um, where people wanted you to be at work and, and wanted to promote me because I worked really hard. Um, and I was always successful with, with whatever I did. I worked in a kitchen job for like five or six years. Um, but the problem was I didn't love it. And I got to a point in my life where, you know, you go through, yeah, it's just like relationships. And so you get into a relationship and then all of a sudden you realize that's not going to work out. And then you, you realize your whole life really isn't happy. Um, whether it be with that person or just with the way that you're headed. And I was doing everything not for me. 
decided that I wanted to do disc golf again. Um, and I had this insane talent, but I just never applied myself to it. Whether it had been the situation where I couldn't and I had to work on weekends, or if I just was going in a completely different direction. But I, I grinded from, you know, 2017 and a half to 2022 now. Um, and I'm kind of seeing some of that paying off to where, you know, I've got the sponsorships, I've got the, you know, the help from, you know, retail stores to help sell my discs. Um, I've built a brand around my teaching and, you know, I've really poured in the time and effort into actually figuring out how to help people and what is the correct way to throw um, by hundreds of hours, hundreds of lessons. Um, and, you know, that's, and I love it. You know, I come home tired every day, but satisfied and happy with my life. Yeah, that's awesome. So, coming up to, like, current times, is disc golf now your full-time job, or do you balance a, a, a nine-to-five job and then do disc golf on top of that? Um, yeah, so the answer is, and that's a funny question, because, you know, I would say disc golf is my full-time job, but um, when I say disc golf, I mean in the disc golf community, so whether it be, I mean, my real full-time job is teaching, instructing disc golf, um, I mean, I do that five to seven days a week almost, um, and so that's, you know, that's something that I guess is really a, a blessing in disguise, and I hate to say it the way you know, I'm saying it, but 2020, the way it went down, it gave me time to actually quit my job, um, which they got shut down, that's why I left, but um, I started focusing on building a van and, and trying to figure out ways that I can make money that aren't in a kitchen, um, and then that's when I, I was like, okay, well, I'm good at teaching. I've, I've been mentoring people my whole life because I've kind of always been at the, you know, higher level, and I wanted to bring everyone up to that level, so all for one, as a casual disc golfer, it's more fun to have competition, um, and so I could see how that could translate into actually becoming a day job, and when that 2020 boom happened of all those disc golfers, so many people didn't understand what disc golf was. They could understand that it's just a sport and you throw the disc, but they didn't understand how to throw the disc. Um, and that's something that I prided myself on. I knew exactly how to do that. So, hey, uh, Phil, I want to talk about, sorry to cut you off, man. <laughs> um, but you were teaching disc golf, you know, when you found out you were doing well. So you're charging people to do this, right? kind of got your own thing going in the Raleigh system, having people, you know, come to you and doing clinics, you teach teaching one-on-ones. What, what kind of teaching style were you doing? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, basically private lessons, one-on-one, -on -one, doing some clinics. Awesome. And then I really, I, one story that I enjoyed hearing from you on another podcast was, can you tell us a story about Scott Stokely and how you ran into him and how he kind of came onto your turf? I thought it was a really unique story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's working with a friend of mine uh, who I was also uh, working with at the time. And he, my friend said that he wants, he wants to talk to you. He wants to uh, work with you, possibly. And, and I was not really interested in that. <laughs> because I'm like, he's going to come on to my turf and he's going to steal everybody that I've worked so hard to, you know, you know, show them what I can do. And when he came, he basically talked to me. And he's like, I don't want to take any of your people. He 
he's like, if anything, I want to like, give you some of my people that I, you know, he had hundreds of people on a wait list that he needed help, you know, teaching. And so he came and actually watched me teach and he was like, Hey man, 99.9% .9 of this, we agree on hundred percent on everything form and function wise. He's like the way that we apply it and the way that we tell people like the analogies we use are slightly different, but he's like the mechanics are the same thing. And from then on, you know, I think I'm the only person that he's really entrusted to teach his brand of disc golf, which is awesome. That is, that is cool, man. I, I, I can see it out of you, just your personality. You know, you, you get people, you, you, you build people's energy. Um, and I can see you being amazing at it. Um, so with the Scott Stokely method in a nutshell, um, how does that work? You guys, you guys set up these clinics, you travel around the country, people sign up for these. How, do, how does somebody get involved in this, in these clinics with you? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we, so scottstokely.net, um, I believe is the website and that is where you can sign up for all of the clinics and seminars that we, you know, we post, um, the seminars are capped at six people because when you're going to pay the amount of money that we, we charge for you to have an all day experience, we want to have it to where everyone gets the experience. And if we had too many people, you just wouldn't get the whole experience, but our clinics, you know, there's no cap on that because it's more of a informational type thing, um, where the seminars are a little more personalized and you're going to get that one-on-one -on -one feedback. Nice. So people will visit that website to kind of see what your tour, I mean, you're going to follow the pro tour a little bit this year and on the side, be doing these uh, seminars and clinics, right? Yeah. So like Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, probably more like, I think Tuesdays are going to be the day that I'll be teaching and I might do two a week. I might do one. Um, and it really just depends on when these doctors can figure out how to fix me. Um, because uh, that process has been extremely prolonged, which, uh, you know, that's how the medical industry is right now, but yeah, let's get into that. So you, you're, you're broken a little bit. Um, you know, I, I talked to you earlier today, you said that you went out and threw, but it just doesn't feel the same. What's going on with you physically? Yeah, I got, um, there's, uh, I'm not sure why or how it occurred and neither do the doctors, but there's just some type of muscle impediment that's happening um in my it's kind of like your glute hamstring it's called the gluteus femoris muscle is what they told me it was and i could be slaughtering that but um and when that and when that is inflamed or well inflamed you know it it creates a lot of problems around it so your back starts to lock up your si joint starts to lock up there's other impingements that start to happen in your hip um, and then your hamstring and your calf and Achilles are obviously affected by it as well. Um, and so, you know, disc golf's a full body motion. And if you lose one, either your mobility and flexibility, um, you start seeing worse results um, because your body isn't functioning how it's supposed to. And that's kind of where I find myself in certain times, whether I can't get through a whole round without hurting and or certain shots have just become more difficult where they used to just be mindless and easy. Um, and so I think it's, there's going to be something procedure wise or physical therapy we can do to fix it, but they just don't have a good answer yet. Man, that that's kind of scary, dude. And I, I hate hearing that and just thinking of, you know, where you're at as a competitor, that's gotta be really hard. 
Yeah, it is. But at the same time, I've been dealing with, with it for about three years. Basically, the whole time I've been rededicating myself to disc golf, it's gotten worse and worse. Um, do, you, do you think any of like your form makes things worse or better? No. Um, I've adjusted my form in ways to like help compensate for it. But the actual issue itself, I don't think, is disc golf derived. I, I think it's just the way that my body kind of either grew or, like I said, there can be injuries that cause these types of muscle groups to be, you know, inflamed. So thinking ahead with this coming season, um, you know, is it so much pain to where you got a big tournament coming up? You think that you might just skip out on it and drop out because you don't want to perform well? What's your thought process with that? So I'm not going to actually, I mean, my, my actual discount pro tour season doesn't start until like June um, because I'm trying to give myself ample amount of time to like get a diagnosis go through whatever process or procedure we have to use or do and then recover. Um, and so that, that process was actually happening pretty quick. Uh, right up until this past, uh, week and they're, you know, they're out, they're trying to get cortisone shots before they're able to do any type of procedure. Um, and, and the people that do those shots, um, which is with a CT scan, you know, they're not available until like February. So I'm basically sitting here waiting for another month <laughs> just to get a shot to see if it helps so that they can move forward with surgery or, or physical therapy or whatever it is. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that that all works out for you, man. They give you some sort of idea of what this is because it still sounds like a mystery. Yeah, it's uh, they know what it is. They just haven't figured out how to fix it yet. Hey, let's jump out of this conversation. I haven't been to Raleigh, North Carolina in quite a few years. I can't remember what I was last there for, but if I was to come back to Raleigh, North Carolina, what new course would I have to go play out there? Oh, man. So Diablo is uh, probably the best course that they've installed uh, as of recently. I think that, you know, obviously it would be a really awesome experience. It's 22 holes. Um, but, you know, there's one other course that's kind of going in the ground. I'm not sure if it's it's in the ground yet, but I think it's called Talon's Ridge. But I, I'll know about that more in the next year. I'm sure it'll be done in the next year. But um, Diavolo is the place to be in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's actually Morrisville, I think, but it's very close. Are there any uh, A-tiers coming up in that area? Um, not at the beginning of the year. I'm not sure. I mean, Downey's Players Cup is an A-tier, I believe, that will be at the end of the year. And what's the other event? Midtown Chiropractic was an A-tier, but I'm not sure if I'll be here for that. That's kind of like summertime. Um, I don't know if there's any A-tiers in this area in particular, but I'm sure there's some surrounding the area. Cool, cool. So, hey, coming from North Carolina, from my understanding, I spent a little bit of time there. They say that North Carolina means that you're really good in the woods. Would you agree to that? How is your game in the woods compared to going to other courses where they're wide open and you traveling, you know, on the tour a little bit? How can you describe your wood game? Is that a fair thing to say about people from North Carolina? They're a little more confident in the woods. Yes, yeah, so I think the thing about North Carolina is, and um, every every place has you know some type of challenge that you have to overcome. But the challenge in North Carolina is being able to throw the disc 
with some velocity and speed and accuracy because not all the holes now some of the holes are you know 250 feet but the other ones that are 320 350 400 those are holes that you actually have to throw a real shot on with a driver sometimes and throw it very accurately and i think that's the challenge of north carolina disc golf um, and a lot of forehand players fare very well here because they can manipulate those tight gaps just a little bit easier sometimes um but you know with traveling and going to places like kansas and texas you know you start realizing that playing in the wind is just as hard as playing in the woods um and you know the same could be said about somewhere like arizona where everything's wide open if you're not good at throwing a hyzer <laughs> you're not going to fare well out there um so yeah it's a combination you just have to be good at everything honestly Nice. What would you say is like the best part of your game? Some would say there's this putting, there's this distance, uh, accuracy through the woods. Is there something particular about your game that stands out compared to other people's game? I think if we were going to make a comparison to, you know, most like typical disc golfers, I think, you know, obviously my distance is, is pretty, um, pretty big in, in, you know, in the grand scheme of things, but you know, technical gap hitting in the woods has been something that I've been really good at for a long time. Um, you know, I think my putting has come a very, very long way from where it started. Um, I think that may play a part in why I would never say that I think my putting's the best thing about me in my game. But um, I'm sure there's people that would disagree with that since it's come such a long way. Um, but yeah, I think distance and gap hitting in the woods is something that I would pride myself on. So what do you think has made your putting come to the next level? What have you been doing differently? Just understanding the mechanics of it. I mean, there's so many analogies that people have used at disc golf and videos, tutorials that give you half, you know, half the idea of how to do something. But, you know, you hear that guy that says, shake hands with the basket. Nobody knows what that means necessarily. That's like a bowling thing too, right? I mean, how do, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Be, but, you know, uh, for a long time, I wouldn't bend my wrist in. I just didn't want to, I felt like I would lose control that way. This was as a kid, right? And so I would putt with my hand, like I was shaking hands with the basket, and then overextend to the right, and I would always either miss right or it just wouldn't have a lot of spin. And I just, for the longest time, I mean, I look back on it now, I'm like, how dumb was I? But, I mean, if you look at a lot of disc golfers, they do that all the time. You should see me and Mark. You can't – we don't have you on video, but we're both here listening to you talk, like kind of mimicking what you're thinking about and trying to, you know, explain the wrist snap and over the right. We look pretty dumb over here. But, but, I mean, if you just bend your wrist in and then when you pop your wrist out, you don't overextend and and you leave your hand straight, (laughs) you're going to be shaking hands with the basket. That's what that term meant. But I didn't get that for like eight years. Yeah. <laughs> and my putting suffered so bad. And I was I grew up in the disc golf era where there was like no tutorial videos. Nobody was teaching you anything. You just watched the professionals do it and you tried to mimic them. Um, and so I was just I, I didn't figure that out until probably four or five years ago. And, and you know, that it takes a toll on your confidence when for uh, two-thirds of your disc golf career you did it wrong and then for the next third you've been really good at it so but that's that's how I got a little bit better I think yeah that's I mean that's interesting I'm sitting here listening to and watching Patrick trying to figure this out but 
I completely understand, you know, like the form you're talking about because that's how I putt. I'm very much a spin putter. I put a lot of snap on my putts. Um, so it's it's natural for me. I, I totally understand the, the concept. But for me, I was trying to help a buddy out fix his putting, and he puts more like Patrick does with the straddle putt and the, and, the, and you know the full swing on a stiff arm. And I'm trying to see, like, how do I explain to this guy how to putt better? We finally figured something out after, like, weeks of trying. Um, but getting back on topic, though, um, what's one area that, that you're focusing on trying to get better at in the off season? Yeah, uh, physically. <laughs> I This is the first offseason that I haven't trained in any way. Um, and I think that's why I played so bad today is because I'm not putting. I'm not throwing any practice drives. I'm not working out. Basically, the doctors have said, stop doing everything you're doing and try to let your body just recover. Um, there you, you know, you're abusing it constantly. And so while everyone's out here practicing and, and getting better, I, you know, I'm just sitting here getting stagnant, um, and teaching every day. I get to throw during my lessons, but it's not the same, but problem being, if I go practice and I go put my body through that, that kind of torture, if you will, um, it won't recover. And it won't recover fast or well. So until we figure this issue out, I'm basically just driving myself into the ground if I, you know, use my body, which is hilarious at 26, I'm saying that. But, um, you know, the sooner we get it figured out, the faster I can actually start practicing again. And then my skill level, I believe, will skyrocket it just like it usually does. Yeah, I know there's something wrong with you, Phil, because I, I called you on Friday. And it was a Friday night, maybe like 7.30. You know, you're you know, almost 10 years younger than me. The old 26 year old me on a Friday is like, I'm out doing something. You were like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to turn on, I think you said the Xbox or something. So I'm curious, you know, while you're having this stagnant time, man, what, what games are you playing? What are you jamming on? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I like, uh, I, I play a little bit of Forza, um, which is like a racing game. Um, I like cars and you can customize cars, which is pretty fun. Um, and then, uh, you know, the typical 26 year old. I like playing Call of Duty with my buddies. Um, and that's, uh, you know, we find ourselves staying up a little, little too late sometimes hanging out online, but it's, you know, it's just good, good time with the boys. Um, and that's, you know, that's pretty much all the video games that I play is just a little bit of Call of Duty and uh, racing. Yeah. I transform into like a halo God in the winter time. Like I, that's the only game I ever play. And I play a ton of it in the winter time because here in Ohio, it's super cold. I get out of work at like five o'clock and it's already dark and hopefully I got my putting practice in at lunch, but, uh, um, all right, let's, let's move on a little bit. I want you to tell me, let's go back to the teaching thing. What are three things that you see are the most common mistakes that new people do when, with their form and on driving? Maybe sure. three yeah. things. Let's yeah. Do, I, I'm going to give you one on each. So we'll do uh, backhand, forehand, and putting. So the, the one thing that I see most amateurs doing on backhand, it's kind of two things. If you look at every amateur's footwork, they, um, they let's just take the three-step run-up. So they take a step, and we're going to use a right-handed person's type form. Um, they take their first step with their right foot. When they go into their X step, they're already rotating their shoulders backwards, and they're 
their X step rather than being parallel with their feet um, is basically at a 90 degree and their, their foot's backwards as they're gonna be going out of their X step. And when they do that, they basically prematurely rotate into their X step and they will also prematurely rotate out of their X step, which means that they kind of end up with one foot facing backwards and the right foot facing forwards. Um, and if you look at their hips, there's no hip rotation backwards. Um, the one thing you want to do on a backhand is plant before you pull. You need to put your foot down before you engage your hips. And what a lot of players do is they turn their hips before they ever put their foot on the ground, which basically eliminates the whole idea of rotating and hinging and having your arm working like a catapult. And that's the thing that people call, you're throwing it with your arm. That's what throwing it with your arm feels like. When you don't use your body and your hips to turn your you know, arm forward and you just use your arm. So that's, that's, the, that's the one thing I see on backhand, people planting with their foot forward instead of backwards and you know planting before they pull. Um, forehand, uh, whether you know a lot of players, I think one of the people that, that has encouraged a lot of people to throw forehands a certain way, um, has said, keep your elbow close to your body. Um, there's one fundamental flaw with keeping your elbow close to your body, and that is no other sport or anything in life that throws anything like a forehand is close to your body. Like a ball, baseball, football, if you threw a spear, it would be all, you know, kind of next to your ears, right? Like over the top of your shoulder. And, you know, if you threw a baseball, if you know how to throw a baseball, there's three things that happen. Your shoulder turns, your elbow follows, and then your hand comes right after that. And that's how every good forehander looks. Um, and so that's kind of the problem with most people's forehands is they, they just throw it one, either just with their hand in front of their elbow, and then they don't use their body to actually whip their arm. Um, and it's kind of the same thing back in the forehand. We're whipping our arm <laughs> and then letting a thing rip out of our hand. Um, so if you just use your arm on a forehand, you're never going to get the power. But if you can get your body rotating to a point where your shoulders and your elbows are pulling your hand through, um, and it's obviously really hard to describe this on the phone, um, you're going to have a much faster rotation, which is what you know creates speed. Um, that and then... How about we just do, I'll do two tips on the forehand because this other one's really important. But people throw their forehand off their back leg. So when you throw a forehand, your weight should be over top of your front leg. A lot of people never get their weight shifted onto their front leg. And when you do that, well, when you do, you know, when you have your weight on your back leg, you basically kind of just end up skying everything and, and you never get a good grip on the disc. It comes out early and nose up. If you get over top of your front leg, you'll see that disc coming out much straighter in front of you with a lot more power and a lot less effort. Wow, sounds like we've played some rounds together. I mean, you just literally <laughs> described my game. That's uh, <laughs> what I'm working on. He's over here, like, moving with his body and arm. He's like, that's me, that's me. And I'm like, I know, but I don't want to admit it to you. So there's tons of videos out there about forearm and backhand and rotating and all that kind of stuff. What tips do you have to plant and then rotate, you know, to get all the timing and everything down? 
Like what kind of drills and tips and things do you teach your people, your classes? Definitely. So the problem is um, your brain and your body fight each other uh, pretty much the whole time you're trying to learn something. So there's an idea of learning, like steps to learning. The first step is just becoming competent, understanding what to do. That's, that's what your brain needs to understand. And then you have to teach your body how to understand that. So that's being physically aware of what you're doing. Um, and once you become competent and aware, you think about, okay, my arm needs to be here, right? Or my footwork needs to be like this, but you can't focus on every single piece at one time. So what we do and what I do specifically is break it down into different parts of the throw. So the first thing you need to do is learn your footwork. So we will end up walking through just what footwork looks like, feels like, you know, the simplest way of getting your feet to function properly. From there, I start teaching you what your upper body does, where your arm needs to be for your for your elbow to actually hinge and be a catapult rather than keeping, you know, what a lot of amateurs do is they'll press their bicep into their chest muscle. Well, if you look at if you just do that to your body, press your bicep into your into your chest muscle, you're gonna see that your elbow's facing the ground. There's nowhere for your arm to actually hinge. You're actually just what they call rounding. And that's what a lot of players do is that you know, that's subsequently gonna make you round. Um, and so I teach how to keep the arm in the right spot, which is hilarious because most people will say, Well, now I don't feel like I have any power. And that's because they've thrown it with their arms so much that they don't understand how to make their hips and shoulders rotate like a top and sling their arm like a catapult. But, you know, you, you will understand that, you know, it might take a week, it might take a month, but most people end up getting it and, and creating speed that way. Um, and so once we get your, your footwork working, we get your upper body, you know, starting to understand the position it needs to be in, then there's this timing that you have to figure out when you're doing your footwork, when to reach back and how to plan, you know, and that's the part where I just have people start doing standstills because it's better to just get the good throw in with your feet, not moving, you know, and people are like, well, I don't have good power. Or I don't feel like I have weight transfer. You don't, but we have to get you doing the right thing over and over again to create muscle memory so that when you start doing it all together, it kind of just flows. So I'll piece people together during a lesson. And then at the end of the lesson, I'll be like, okay, forget about everything I just told you. Just go ahead and throw on. Now I'll take a video. They're basically doing each little piece of the throw together without thinking about it because I tricked their body into creating different muscle memory than what they had already had. I can't um, tell you. Psychological warfare. <laughs> Yeah, I can't tell you how many times Patrick and I have played around. I said, dude, just do a standstill throw. Like every single round, probably four or five times off the deep end. Yeah, Mark, Mark, uh, man, he really gets into his throws, man. Like I don't – we'll be playing on like a 250-foot hole, 200 – and like he looks like he's throwing like he's trying to throw 400 feet. It's hard to explain. But anyways, just to summarize everything that you were just talking about, it went over my head a lot because I'm thinking of my next question for you. And I hopefully people that are listening to this podcast can kind of just tell how detailed you are on being able to educate. You know what you're talking about. Um, so these clinics and all these things, when Phil is saying that he's in your area, I highly recommend that you're going to sign up. I know Sandra said that when you're back in Dayton, she's definitely signing up for one of your seminars. And I, I want to push her to do that. 
I'm going to show up. I'm not going to pay a damn thing. And I'm going to just kind of walk. Now, <laughs> I'm, at, I'm at least going to have you. I'm at least have you. Come. <laughs> hey, but tell Sandra that whenever I'm back in town, that she doesn't need to sign up for anything, that I appreciate always being welcomed into your house. And I will 100% do anything and everything I can to help her out for free. 100%. Awesome. And I want to I want to go back to you coming into town. Like I, I've been fortunate to have you stop by twice. One time I, I had the time to like meet you and we went out into Belmont and we had a battle and I'm going to explain this. Yeah. 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 We, I was going to get there, you know, and uh, we tied, right. I think we both shot something like seven or eight down. Let's say it was nine. It was nine down. Okay. Nine down. You know, it's my home course, you know, it's the course that I play the most, which is Belmont, not a technical course by any means for anybody, but it's, it's got some distance. It's got some shots, you know, you're coming there. You probably drove like six, seven hours before you got there. So benefit to me, but you know, you're a touring pro. I got a nine to five job. I felt pretty freaking awesome about it. I was like, you know, you know, we could have went and thrown some thrown off holes, but I think we were both like, eh, I'll be back. We'll play it again. Well, you came back last year and we threw it. And what did we shoot? Like an eight or nine again? Well, I think we did. We tie both times. Yeah, we have a tie, dude. There's, there's yeah, yeah. It's hundred percent a tie. I think we shot nine, eight, nine and eight or something like that out there two times in a row. I think we're. I think what I remember is we're seventeen under. We're both seventeen under in two rounds of that course the past two years we've played like like accumulated between the rounds yeah i think about it all the time like i can't wait till you come back so i can spank on you i think the, the tiebreaker what's gonna happen to you is I've, I've i'm gonna be healthy at that point and then i'm gonna just pop off like 1400 it's gonna be over no i think tiebreaker should be at the new echo valley course white uh Golds or whatever is long. Stay out of this, Mark. No, I'm taking them to Belmar. <laughs> oh, come on. You know, like, that's a great idea. So this is what I love about about professional versus amateur players. And I think Patrick's a professional, but <laughs> stop it. <laughs> like, He's blushing. You take us into a, a course like like Belmont, that's an equalizer, right? There's equal opportunity. But if we go to a harder course, what's gonna happen? Patrick's gonna lose. Yeah, I'll give that to you. That's because I've had so many reps. It's like my Kentwood is to your Belmont, you know. Right. Like if I went to if I went to Kentwood, if I shot anything worse than a probably a twelve, I'm gonna get beat by you, um, easy. But um, all right. So you know, you came through. Um, I know one time I think those you still played with me at Belmont, but the one night you showed up, I think you're like I'm not getting into like eleven. Um, I left you a, a plate with some pork chops, man. How were my pork chops? You know what? I will say after that pork chop had sat for like three or four hours, it was still super delicious. And I don't even think I heated it up. That's how good it was. I just go ahead and ate it like cold. Man. So um, the whole thing, it might have been lukewarm actually. It's probably still sitting out. <laughs> yeah, but you always know whenever you're in Dayton, you've got a hot meal here. Um, I don't, I don't know. I recently just took a freaking glow light for a glow disc and I was out cooking and my, uh, my grill light went off and I shined it on it and it was the most disgusting, hideous thing. There were all these green, weird growing looking things and I, you know, I turned the light off and it looks just fine. So I don't recommend doing that, but, uh, yeah, man, next time you're in town, you know, you gotta definitely, you know, hit me up at Belmont and I think we're going to have to get that almost recorded and put up on your channel or maybe I'll eventually yeah. add some more to my channel. Definitely. I'm 100% down for that this year.
Awesome. Yeah, so uh, tomorrow I've got a charity tournament at Belmont. It's a doubles event. It's going to be something like 32 degrees out when we're playing. Um, I've got a really good partner. we got a couple good talents out there. I know by the time everybody's listening to this, they're going to know that I'm the champion. So, uh, <laughs> But let's talk about cold disc golf, man. I know it gets cold in North Carolina. When I lived there for the two years, I remember one time, you might remember, it snowed like three inches in a single afternoon. And this would have been 2014-ish. And I actually got stuck at work, man. I had a Mustang at the time, and I couldn't even back it out of the parking spot at the at the hospital I was working at, so I slept at work. But uh, tell me, man, uh, disc golfing in the cold for you, what's that like? You know, what? Yeah. So I was, uh, I, I had a land surveying job for like two years. And there's one thing you'll know about land surveying, you're outside. 365 days a year or however many days you work and um it's it's cold it's cold like for like four months so you have to figure out how to stay warm um as long as you can keep your body warm and you can keep your hands warm to an extent disc golfing in the cold is not so bad um i guess one quick tip is when you're done playing disc golf at night bring your disc golf back inside some people think that's silly but um and I think when you walk right back outside, your discs are just instantly going to get cold. You know, maybe you can keep them a little more warm. Maybe they'll feel a little bit better when you throw them. So that's that's half the battle is making sure your plastic feels right in your hand. Um, but then making sure that you can actually feel the thing. So um, I wear, like, kind of loose-fitting gloves, like cotton gloves. Um, nothing, like, too crazy. I don't like the super thick snowboarding skiing gloves. Those are too warm. And then my hands sweat. Um, and I usually stick a hand warmer in my gloves. Um, and then, yeah, you just need a good base layer. I've got, like, Under Armour uh, little leggings that are, you know, polyester-ish but really thick and warm. Um, and then a really nice undershirt that's, like, long sleeve and extremely warm. And I, I tuck that layer in. You know, and then I have a, usually a long sleeve layer over top of that that I tuck into itself as well. Um, and by that point, I've trapped all the heat in my body. I wear some gloves and a hat, and I'm totally good. Maybe my toes and my fingers get a little cold, but, you know, that's disc golfing in the cold right there. Yeah, I well, I want to, like, play a little tiny violin for you over here. You know, us in Ohio, our, our winters are way harsher. You go up to yeah. Michigan, and it's even worse, so. You know, while your tips are great, all of our listeners here, besides some of the new guys, are probably like, I've heard that one. Have you, uh, um, these all, you said a hand warmer. I wanted to, we, we had an uh, episode with Christine about winter's coming. I didn't bring this up, but there are these electric rechargeable hand warmers out there on market. You can get a cheap one for like $12, or you can, you know, get a nice one for like 30 I bought mine for like 25 But they're great because you plug them in. They're about the size of a cell phone. And you know, if you need two of them, I guess you do. But you know, like you said, you probably already have a glove on your left hand. You can keep your other hand open. But there's these electric chargers, and they also act as a battery bank. Have you ever seen those, Phil? Yeah, one of the guys in my lessons uh, today had one of those, and uh, I I didn't make fun of them for it. But I, my parents, the past three years at Christmas have given me an electric hand one. And no I way. Every year, I'm not going to use that. Yeah. I don't. I do not like the electric ones because they either get too hot yeah. or they don't get hot enough. Now, there have been, I think I saw yours the last time I was there. 
but they you can put them in like this nice velvety kind of bag right um, and it makes it to where even when it's too hot it actually feels good um but i, I just like regular hand warmers um yeah. i know it's kind of wasteful and expensive but those are my favorite yeah to each his own for sure but yeah they can get they can get over warm and you know i'm not pulling that thing out until it's like sub 25 degrees you know personally I, but everybody else is different you know i don't even put on two gloves unless it's like under freezing you know i like to have both my hands on my plastic but that's just me you ohio people are very tough we are tough thanks we're, uh, in north carolina we're a little more sensitive you know yeah well um thinking about i want you know thinking about the word sensitive and I, it's a sensitive subject but we had a mutual friend um brad Lindsayan. And uh, the, the, the story that I have about, I have two stories real quick about Brad Lindsay. And um, Brad was somebody in the Raleigh scene that was very vocal, very a life of a lot of people. You know, I, I get out of work. One of my first work uh, weeks of working in Raleigh, I get out of work. I go straight to Kentwood. I have maybe like 10 discs in my bag at this time. I unload all of them on hole one. You know what hole one is. It's a little ace race thing. I almost ace it. I, I chain out and I hear this, oh, blank. I can't say it on the podcast. And I look over and it's this one guy and he's like, I'm like, who the heck is this? Like, I'm just out there by myself. And he walks up to me. He's like, who are you? I'm like, I'm Patrick. He's like, I've never seen you around here. He's like, I'm Brad. You know, you got anybody to play with? I'm like, no. And shot the round with him and like instantly became friends with him. I was very new at the, at the sport at the time. I was playing. I played my first tournament just before I left Florida I moved to North Carolina and I was super interested in playing in like leagues and stuff like that. Well, he introduced me to everybody, introduced me to you, um, introduced me to the whole scene there in North Carolina. Um, and then my one other story that I have involves you. Um, this was about two months before I left North Carolina and moved back to Dayton, Ohio. I had my Mustang at the time. Brad had some sort of Corolla. You could yeah, probably tell a Mazda three. A Mazda three. I, oh my god, I drive a Mazda three now. Look at that. Um, <laughs> and then, and then you had this little red thing or something. Miata. Yeah, Miata. So we all somehow Raleigh's got a lot more traffic, so their roads are a lot bigger there. But it was like a three lane road, and we all got to a red light. This was post tournament. And we're all just revving our engines at each other. And we just take off. Like, I'm burning my tires. I see you guys take off because I'm like, I know I'm going to catch up to you in my Mustang. So I'm just sitting there smoking them. Well, I catch up to you guys. All of a sudden, cherries and berries behind me. You know, I see I see 5-0 behind me. I'm like, oh, crap. So you guys just keep going. And then I'm like, I'm going to take a left over here. So I take a left. And they don't follow you guys. These two cops follow me. There was two of them. And uh, they're like, yeah, you were the one back there smoking your tires. Long story short, they just, they, they let me go. I don't know how. I even had expired drivers, or expired tags. And the guy was like, I got good news and bad news for you. He's like, I'm going to not give you a ticket for reckless driving, but your, uh, your license plates are suspended. I'm like, sir, I know I'm leaving to Ohio in like three weeks. I didn't feel the need to do that. Long story short, he lets me go, man. I, I don't know how I got away with that ticket. But Brad Lindsayan is what the focus of this whole thing was. Um, we lost him recently. I know you guys held a memorial for him. Last time I was in Raleigh, I did hit him up and got to play with him. I think you were doing whatever. But tell me a little bit about Brad Lindsayan, man, and, and, and how you met him and just just his legacy. Let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about Brad. Yeah, so I met Brad 
when I was probably 14, 15 years old. And, uh, you know, I was a little hooligan. Brad was definitely a little hooligan as well. And he was a little older than me, though. I think when I was 15, he was probably 21. And, and yeah, we just met at Kentwood, just like you did. And, I, you know, obviously we have a ton of memories of Kentwood playing disc golf together. Um, but he was really the first guy that, not maybe not the first guy, but one of the main guys that was a, able to take me around and play disc golf outside of just Kentwood, which was my own course in Raleigh. Um, and, you know, there's this unbelievable amount of faith that he had in me, you know, and disc golf that he just was like, man, you're like the next Paul McBeth, dude. And I'm like, stop saying that. But it's like, I'm just, you know, a guy that likes, you know, it's pretty good at throwing these things. And he just had this thing that he knew that I was going to be great at disc golf. And I, you know, I still feel like I've yet to hit even close to the peak of my, you know, abilities. You know, and I have a voicemail from him that I still have on my phone. And he's like, it's like 2019, I think. He's like, hey, man, I know you're not playing like you want to, but, you know, I, I know you can be great. And, and you know, and sometimes, like, when I drive to tournaments and I'm having, like, maybe just a little less self-confidence than I really need to perform at my highest level, I'll just play that voicemail. And, like, remember that, you know, it doesn't matter if I believe in myself or not. You know, he was such a, a fantastic friend, and he believed in me. And I've won multiple tournaments with him caddying just because he would exude that persona of who he wanted me to be on me, and I would fill in those shoes momentarily. So, you know, whenever I go out, just know that I've got a picture of him in my pocket um, on Discord Pro Tour events, and I think about him all the time. Yeah, man. I, I stayed in touch with him after I left, and he knew I was kind of taking disc golf more seriously, and I was working my ranks up. I came to Dayton, and won an intermediate tournament and then moved right up to advance and was struggling in advance one time. And, you know, I had a long conversation with him. And the one thing that still sticks to me, he's, he told me this. And when I was younger, I didn't quite understand it. And as I got progressed in the sport was he says, don't be afraid to make adjustments. Okay. So what I was doing was just playing the game that I knew. I never developed new shots, new, new things, never built my confidence. I was just playing that intermediate advanced level golf. And then I was like, make advancement, you know, or, or make adjustments. And now it's ringing. I try to do that every year. And I thank him for that statement. I love that. And I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you have to be able to adjust, um, you know, whether it be your situation with the weather or, you know, how your game's feeling that day, whether you're not feeling confident, you have to, yeah, you have to be able to be malleable. Yeah, speaking of adjustments, that leads me into our pro tips of Patrick Gray segment. And this is kind of an interesting topic. I know uh, Phil, I talked to you about it last night. I briefly mentioned it to Patrick when he got here. Um, as Patrick mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I did get picked up by Prodigy's battalion team. So what that means is I have to convert my entire bag over to Prodigy. Thankfully, I've been throwing Prodigy for a little bit, for about the last year. But let's say you got a new player wants to build their first bag, start getting competitive. Um, Phil, we'll lead it off with you. Um, what tips would you give a new competitive player on actually building a productive bag? Sure. Um, 
Sorry, I got a scratchy throat. Uh, the the first thing that you want to have in your bag, obviously, is some type of consistency, right? And so people find that with brands because they say, oh, well, if I'm just one brand, then my, I only have a few choices for my four-speed disc, six-speed disc, eight-speed disc, so on and so forth. Um, now, it doesn't matter if you want to go completely mixed bag or completely one brand i think that you can be successful any way you do that but if you can minimize the amount of molds that you have in your bag this is where disc golf becomes very difficult because when i got picked up by discraft i didn't have a lot of beat-in versions of certain molds so then you had to go and have 20 molds in your bag instead of eight so, you know, if you looked at my bag right now, you'd see multiple comments, multiple buzzes, multiple undertakers, you know, multiple forces. But if you counted the amount of molds I have, it's actually pretty low, probably like eight or nine molds, if that. Um, and so that's what I would say. Try to get a disc that feels good to you for each speed and then beat them in to where you have that disc that does three different things with one mold. Um, and it's something about, you know, how that disc feels in your hand makes you confident and you'll throw it better just because your psyche is there. That is like excellent advice. And I'm, I'm personally slowly learning that with, with my new bag set up with like my fairways. I do a lot of fairway shots more than the high speed drivers. Um, so that that's actually huge. Uh, Patrick, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I really liked everything that Phil mentioned. Um, you know, I've been throwing the same, you know, I've been playing for God, 17 years now. And my first midway or fair or midway, uh, mid range was a rock. I still throw those today. And like Phil says, you know, he's got three or four buzzes. Well, I've got three rocks in my bag currently. Um, I know when I met you, Mark, I kind of picked on you a little bit because I knew you were really heavy with prodigy. And I was like, man, if they're not paying for you to do it, you know, then, why not, you know, open it up to everything? I'd probably try to shove a rock on you. I am a pro rock guy. I do have one Buzz OS, and it happened. Dude, I lost my my PB Buzz OS, by the way. I just lost that at a glow round maybe about a couple of weeks ago. We'll get, I'm going to get one of those from you when you get back into town. But um, a mixed bag, you know, I, I play with a mixed bag, and that's because nobody's paying me to do it. So pro tip when it's not for necessarily to become a pro, but for an am is like, don't narrow it down to one single brand. There, this is a big discussion and debate among a lot of people. And I actually saw somebody on social media kind of rebuttal this. It's just pick, you know, if you want to be brand loyal, that's fine. You know, whatever you're confident with. And that's what you got to go with. Um, but I bring it back to Brad Lindsay in, and don't be afraid to make adjustments. So don't be afraid to pick up the newest disc that came in. You know, we've got a great source of media out there like uh you know back in the day you heard this disc came out you just went and picked it up and learned for yourselves well now we can save money and we can get online and type in this disc and watch pros and probably some amateurs out there in their youtube channel throwing these discs so we can kind of see what that disc does without paying for it so pro tip from patrick is just get on youtube look at these new discs um and see what they do. And, you know, when you like something, like Phil says, I like to get four or five or six of them. While they might not all be in my bag, when I'm out doing field work, which I swear to God, I'm going to do at least once a week this year, I'm going to have that all out there, you know, and I'm going to work on just those destroyers, just those T-birds, you know, 
And that's it. I'm going to throw those all 50, 100 times and learn those discs and, discs <laughs> and be confident. Awesome, guys. Both had great advice on that. Uh, my, own, my only comment on the, the, the one brand is, it, for me, it's minimizing overlap in the bag because everybody's got the same discs that do the same same shots or very similar flights. But you just throw what you like, throw what feels comfortable, I think. Um, so to wrap this all up, Phil, um, if people wanted to like follow you on social media or keep up with how your clinics are or any of that, where can they find you? Sure. Um, yeah, if you uh, if you want to follow me, I've got uh, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube channel. Uh, they're all Philip Bartholomew. Instagram is Philip underscore Bartholomew. But um, other than that, yeah, you can just find me on Facebook and YouTube at Philip Bartholomew. Um, here soon, I'll be back on the scottstokely.net website. Um, whenever we get a prognosis and timeline for all this stuff with my body to be fixed, then I'll be back on the road full time. Um, just to touch base on one last thing. Um, if, if you're not throwing discraft, you're probably not going to be as good as the, all the guys that are throwing discraft. So all you prodigy people out there, just keep that in mind. Um, but I'm sure you can be great either way. <laughs> Sorry, Mark, just picking on you a little bit. It's all um, good. Yeah, if you're in the Raleigh area or if you're willing to travel a couple hours into the Raleigh area, you can always hit me up on Instagram and Facebook, and I'll give you my number. We can definitely chat about getting some private lessons or maybe opportunities for clinics here moving forward. Yeah, Phil, man, thank you so much for coming out. Um, you know, we stay in touch enough and I know when you're traveling on the road, you know, you'll, you'll give me the heads up and maybe I can help you set up a couple seminars or clinics here in Dayton. Right. We'll love that for sure. Hey, so I just want to let our listeners know, um, next week we've confirmed that we're going to have Chris, Chris Clemens on, on the, on the show. So with that being said, I'm always going to try and, you know, I, I know you've had to have had a couple run-ins with Chris, Bill. Um, you got any dirt on him or something funny you can share with us about him that we can bring up with him next week or something we should ask him, something we should ask him. Yeah. Ask him how hard it is being left-handed when disc golf was uh, a majority of a right-handed sport for like the first 30 years. <laughs> Maybe that would be an interesting question. But other than that, I think he's just a total gem to the disc golf community. He's a nice guy. Um, so no dirt, but uh, definitely must be hard being left-handed in a dominated, dominantly right-handed sport. Well, that sounds like a great question. I'm, I'm curious to find out, like you said, when the sport first started, but is he now seeing when people are building these championship courses, they're thinking about that? Uh, yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, Philip, we thank you a ton for spending the last hour or so with us and being our, spe our first special guest of 2022. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you guys so much for this opportunity. And uh, maybe I can come back uh, later in the year and we can do this again. Yeah, and uh, we're definitely going to have that Belmont battle too. So, well, hopefully maybe when you're actually in town, we'll record in person. Definitely. We'll put it, we'll put it on YouTube and we'll have a, a live person podcast if you guys want.